Okay, Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. We are slowly going through the book of Romans. We're calling this series The Power of God. Uh, Today we're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. If you're using a blue Bible, that's page 1042. I want to make one quick note about the passage before I read it. And the reason I want to share this with you is because I wish someone would have shared it with me before I started studying. It would have saved me two hours of my life. So I'm going <laughs> to work to just clear something up from the get-go. In verse 1, it asks the question, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? When I read that, what is it that Abraham gained? That was very confusing to me. I thought we were talking about some benefit to him, maybe like something material, maybe some type of benefit that you know helped him move forward in his life and, and all this stuff. It, it, the translation here is just not super clear. When you read verse 1, read it like this. What did Abraham learn? What did he discover? What did he find? What did he see? If you think about it like that, the passage will make a lot of sense. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that chapter 4 is all about justification by faith. We learned what that meant over the last few weeks as we went through chapter 3. And it's kind of like a case study. It's kind of like an example. Here's a person of God in the Bible who was justified by faith. Honestly, Abraham was actually the first one that the Bible says that about. And so we're going to um, kind of have the teaching of justification by faith. It's going to kind of be fleshed out by the life of Abraham. We're going to talk a little bit more about works and the place of works and and faith and what uh, true faith really does. Uh, And in today's passage, we're going to go back to the Old Testament on two different occasions. So with all that being said, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me, please. What then shall we say was gained or, or discovered by Abraham? Our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here's what we're going to do. Take four or five minutes, read the passage to yourself. Read it five five times, ten times if you can. And in that repetition, God speaks. It's called meditation. So grab hold of that passage. Invest in your mind in it personally. After about five minutes, we're going to have a discussion. And we generally base our discussion on the four questions that are in the top right-hand corner of your worship guide. Uh, What's the passage say? What's it mean? How do you obey? Is there anyone I need to tell this to? I'll have the questions on the screen behind me as well. 
So we usually use that to guide our discussion. And so uh, take a few minutes, dig in, and may the Lord bless the teaching of His Word today. Okay, everybody. Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. So all of Romans 4 has to do with Abraham. Okay, the, the whole thing from beginning to end, Abraham's a big part of it. So we're going to be talking about him today and the next two weeks. But in our passage today, there's two Old Testament characters. Two pretty big names from the Old Testament. Abraham being one, King David being the second. And what both of these men received and discovered and lived out of was that they were justified by faith. So Abraham lived... Almost 2,000 years before Jesus and Paul were alive doing their ministry. And I say Jesus and Paul because our salvation is from Jesus. And Paul was the one who wrote Romans. Okay, So I'm going to talk about Jesus and Paul a lot right now. So Abraham was alive almost 2,000 years prior to this. King David was alive about 1,000 years prior to all of this. Those two men did not know the name Jesus. They did not uh, know that he was going to die on a cross. They, they, there was a lot of specific information that we have about Jesus on this side of his life and death that they did not have prior to his coming and his death and his resurrection. But the way that the people in the Old Testament were saved is the same as the way that we're saved today. For many years, I thought the Old Testament... People, they, they, they were saved by just following the law. For years of my Christian life, maybe 10 years or so, I thought that that was how they did it. But no, it wasn't. They're saved the same way that we are. They were saved by trusting the promise of God. Trusting that God either will or has provided what's needed for the forgiveness of our Sin. All right, so we've talked about justification quite a bit. What does that word mean? I'm just going I'm, I'm never going to get tired of teaching this, so I'm going to say it again because we, we all need to hear it a hundred times or more. To justify means to make someone righteous, thus removing their guilt. Okay? We've all done a lot of bad things, right? We've been tainted by our sin, therefore we are not, we don't have perfect righteousness. But when God justifies a sinner, he says, you have the right, the perfect, flawless righteousness of Jesus. And if you have Jesus' righteousness, then you can't be guilty. Okay? This closely is closely related to what's called the imputed righteousness of Jesus. But for one who is righteous, I'm sorry, for one who has been justified, that means that they are righteous. All right. So we've seen in chapter three a lot of details about justification by faith. Verse chapter four, verse one says, you know, our forefather, our, you know, our, our grandpa who started this whole Jewish faith. You know, God started with him. What did he know about all of this stuff? Look at verse 3 of our passage. What does the scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's turn to Genesis 15 for five or ten minutes. Genesis 15. Does anybody know the book of the Bible before Genesis? All right. Genesis 15. Page 12, I've been told. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. We're going to read that and look at it real quick. And, and we're going to this passage because if we understand what happens in this passage, then we're going to understand a lot more about what it means to believe. You know, there's a lot of different definitions out there for believe, right? You know, I believe that George Washington was the first president of our nation, but I don't trust him to do anything for me today, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, faith in Christ has to do with trust is why I mentioned that. So Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. That was his name for a time, and then God changed it to Abraham. So the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and God said this, Fear not, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. All right, so right there, there's a promise, right? God said your reward will be very great. And this is not the first time that Abraham has received a promise from God. But the truth is, so far, Abraham has had a hard time believing the promise of God. And if you're honest with yourself, you will say, yes, sometimes I have a hard time with that too. All right, so God made a promise. Look what Abraham says to God in verse 2. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Oh, okay, I'll stop there. All right, y'all. Abraham and his wife Sarah had no kids. But yet, he had been promised physical descendants. He had been promised kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and so on and so forth. But around this time, he was most likely in his 90s, possibly have been in his 80s. His wife was 10 years younger than him. They were far past childbearing age, as we all understand. And so Abraham hears God's promise, and then Abraham presents his plan to God. Okay, God, you promised this. Well, God, I know exactly how I'm going to do this for you. This is an exa- what he does in these verses is how people try to work for salvation. They try to create their own plan and accomplish it so that they can get what God wants to give them. But if you create your own plan and you accomplish it, are you receiving a gift? No, you're not. You're earning a wage, aren't you? So in these verses, you know, Abraham makes the or God makes the promise to Abraham and then um, uh, Abraham says, God, I'm too old to have kids. So one of my servants, he was a very wealthy man, one of my servants is going to inherit everything I have. And God, you can do what you want to do through him. You know, I, look at me, God. I got it together, right? <laughs> so there's Abraham's plan. There's Abraham's plan. Look at verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. 
This man shall not be your heir. That's God rebuking Abraham. That's God saying, no, Abraham, your plan is not my plan. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. What? I just told you how old he was. That's a hard promise to believe, isn't it? So right after this, the scenery changes. Look at verse 5. God takes Abraham outside and he says, outside, he says, look toward heaven at the number of the stars, if you are able to number him. Then God says to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. All right, that's a more specific promise than the promise in verse 1 that just says, you get a reward. And how did Abraham respond to that promise? Did he say, yes, God, I'm going to get a kid like this? No, he didn't. He believed God, verse 6 says. He believed the promise of God. It says he believed the Lord and it counted to him. And it, I'm sorry. And God counted it to him as righteousness. You all, Abraham was too old to accomplish what God wanted to do, right? God wants us to live a holy life and love Him and obey Him perfectly, does He not? God's standard of obedience is perfection, right? But you know what? We can't do it because we have a sinful nature. Nobody has done it except for Jesus because we, the rest of us have a sinful nature. And so we cannot achieve or earn the righteousness that God requires. We can't go out and do a lot of good things to kind of, you know, tip the scale in one direction or another. We can't get our paycheck and pile it up on one side, hoping that it's enough that it outweighs our sin. The only way we can be made right with God is the same way that Abraham was. And he believed the promise of God. Now, notice the nature of the promise in Genesis 15. And the promise was given twice. In verse 1, it says, your reward will be great. And in verse 5, it says that your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. All right? So, you all, his faith was in something specific. You all, we live in a day and an age where everyone wants to have faith. And, and whether it's on a bumper sticker or something stupid on Facebook. Like, have faith in what? As Christians, we have faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross and on his resurrection. If we're believing in ourselves to get us there, that's not what saves us. We believe in someone specifically, and we believe in something that he did that is specific. We're not just believing that the future is going to get better, even though we do believe that. We believe the future is going to get better because Jesus Christ is currently conquering all his enemies, putting them under his feet, and that there will be a day of final battle and final judgment where all the evil will be conquered and his people will 
walk and step into their full redemption. So we do believe that things are getting better, but we believe that it's something very specific. It's not just a ho-hum, ho-drum, like, oh, maybe, maybe this will work out one day. Maybe things won't always be like they've been for thousands and thousands of years where life is hard, right? You know, our faith is in something specific. It is not an empty optimism. Our faith is in someone specific and in something specific that he did. It is not an empty optimism. I have no problem with the word optimism. I use it often, okay? But we have to just realize. Well, first off, we have to realize we have lots of reasons to be optimistic, right? We are very blessed, as the end of our passage says today. Okay, but this optimism is based upon something rock solid and unchanging. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, he, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Um, let's go back to Romans 4 now, if you would. Look real quick at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 24 and 25, and you'll see more about what I was saying about how specific our faith has to be. Starting halfway in verse 24. It will be the righteousness of God will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, and who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So I point that out to, to show that, you know, there within very close to our passage is the specific nature of our faith. So what does it mean, you all, to believe? What does that word mean? What does it mean to have faith? You all, I love our catechism. And we, we do the catechism every week because it just summarizes some of the most important teachings about our faith in just really simple, easy ways to remember things. And as we memorize this catechism and as it becomes a part of who we are, then we read the Bible and we just start seeing the stuff that we've learned everywhere. Okay? But question 30, which we'll be on in a week or two. Question 30 asks this question. What is faith in Jesus Christ? What is faith in Jesus Christ? So if I'm telling you to believe in Jesus for salvation, what does that actually mean? Well, our catechism says... The faith in Jesus Christ is receiving and resting on Jesus alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to receive and rest. How many of y'all like receiving good things? Who needs some rest? Okay. Most of us work real hard, don't we? Y'all, our salvation is rest because we're no longer working to get saved. We're no longer working in our own strength. We're no longer trying to be good enough. We rest in the fact, when we have faith, we rest in the fact that we are not good enough, but that Jesus is, and he's made a promise to us, and he offers a gift, and we receive that gift. Therefore, we can rest, right? So that's good news. That's a load, a big, giant load off of our shoulders, right? I love it. I'm grateful for that. All right, 
So we get to verses 4 and 5 of our passage. And it makes the contrast or comparison between the person who's trying to be good enough to get saved on their own and between the person who just receives the righteousness of God. Verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, right? How many of y'all work hard to get a paycheck? I do that, right? How many of y'all produce things so that you can earn an income? Those things are your wages. Those things are things that you earn for work performed or accomplished. Y'all, all my works have been bad. Look at Romans 6.23. Flip the page. So what did I earn by my bad works? Romans 6.23. What were my wages for the evil in my life? What are the wages of our sin? What did we earn? What do we deserve? Death. Yep. So we can't earn righteousness, but we can earn death. I've said this countless times. We all deserve to be thrown in hell a really long time ago, right? But by God's grace, God's righteousness, that's not what happened. And so verse 5 speaks of the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Now that's nice, isn't it? Because there's there's been a lot of ungodliness in my life, and there's been a lot of ungodliness in your life. God doesn't just offer the gift of righteousness to people who clean up real nice, right? Okay, You don't have to come to him in your Sunday best, right? And that's why none of us wear ties and suits and all that here, right? So you don't have to come to him having put it all together. You all, when God first spoke to Abraham, Abraham was a part of an idolatrous and false religion. We don't know the details of it. But when you read about his life in Genesis, you see that he was worshiping false gods. And yet, God justified him in his ungodliness. What were you doing when God saved you? What were you doing when God saved you? Sometimes if you get saved when you're young, you might not remember. But you still know that there's a sinful nature within you, right? And so... We were in an ungodly state far from God. We did not reach out to God first, but he reached out to us. And then we grabbed hold of what he offered to us. All right, so that's Abraham for today. Abraham received the righteousness of God, just like we did when we got saved. Now we're going to go to King David, another very popular, um, one of the main popular person. In the story of God and the history of the world, one of the main figures of the Old Testament, one of the greatest men of God who's ever lived. And David, verse 6 says, speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. So David speaks of this blessing. Verses 7 and 8 is from Psalm 32. We'll turn there in a moment. But let's read from here first. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
I've shared this story before a couple times probably, but it's been a while. I'll share it again briefly. Um, I preached on this idea from Romans 3 um, in 2006 when I was in the nation of Turkey. And the night before I preached on it, I had this one of the worst dreams I've ever had, and I still remember it. Um, I'll give you the 60-second version of it for the sake of time. But um, I dreamed that I was a serial killer, and I had just realized that I had left behind a clue, and the authorities were coming to get me, and like, in the next 10 minutes, my freedom was going to be gone forever. I woke up in the most awful sweat I've ever experienced. I sat up in my bed. I, you know, I'm in Istanbul, 15 million people, one of the biggest cities I've ever been in, you know, a city I know almost nothing about at all. I spoke 10 words of Turkish, but I got up, and this was so real to me. I got up and began to put my shoes on. Then I realized I was in my pajamas, so I had to take my shoes off and get my clothes on and some as I was messing with my shoes I realized I'm not a serial killer that was a dream I lived for just a few moments with this intense horrible feeling of guilt because I had just killed a whole bunch of people and I had vivid I still have vivid memories of what I was doing to them and with them and all this stuff. It's some of the most horrible things I've ever thought of. But I was getting ready to run for my life, knowing that if they caught me, they were going to put me in a chair and flip the switch on. And it was all going to be over then. So I, I went from that place in my mind to all of a sudden being this. The things that... I had ownership of the things that I had believed I had done were all of a sudden gone. And, and for me, that has, that has forever been imprinted in my mind as a picture of God making us righteous and removing our sin and our guilt. That's an example of the truth of verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. You all, the Ten Commandments are good. But you know what happened? You broke them. You're a criminal. Or at least you were a criminal before you got saved. You were guilty of what verse 7 calls, calls lawless deeds. But those things have been forgiven. Your sins are covered. Verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Y'all, that's what it means to be saved. Y'all, that's what it means to be forgiven. And it's all free. God loves ungodly, filthy, corrupt sinners. If you're here today and you don't know if you're in this family of God, you don't know if you're going to heaven or not, you don't know how good you have to be to go to heaven, I want you to hear me so loud and so clearly saying, God loves broken, corrupt, filthy sinners. And sinners come in all types, all shapes, and all sizes. Some of them clean up really, really well on Sunday morning. Some of them do lots of good things, but they're still a sinner deep down inside. And then you've got the kind where just everything is messed up. And then you've got a lot of people that are kind of in between those two extremes. But the ungodly look like so many different things. Okay, There's so many different forms of ungodliness out there. The blood of Jesus washes away all the ungodliness. 
No matter what it looks like. No matter what your thing is. No matter what it is that you're holding on to that you've done in the past. That thing is not too big for God to forgive in Jesus Christ. God loves sinners. He takes guilty criminals and he forgives them. And he makes them perfect. And he makes them righteous, God. Y'all. And that man, verses 7 and 8 says, is blessed. Turn to Psalm 32, if you would, please. And we're going to end here in just a few minutes. The Psalms is kind of in the center of your Bible. Psalm 32. We're going to start in verse 1. If anybody gets the page number, let me know. 511 for Psalm 32. All right, I want to read verses 1 through 5. And you'll recognize verses 1 and 2 is what Paul just quoted in Romans 4. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does the word blessed mean? Hmm? Happy. Happy. Yep, that's what it means. And y'all, the way the world defines happiness today and the way the Bible, particularly the Hebrew Old Testament that Psalm 32 was written in, you know, there's some overlap, but there's some differences too, okay? For, for David, when he wrote Psalm 32, when he says blessed, what he's saying is that it is good and proper and right. He's also saying it's straight and level. Raise your hand if you've ever built something crooked. I hung a board on a tree this week for something and it was crooked. Okay? How many of you, your lives were once crooked? All right? Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. God takes your sin away. Things get straightened out, don't they? Things get straightened out a lot. So blessed... Or happy. You know, we, we, in the home we live in, we got the cabinets done, I don't know, two and a half, three years ago. Y'all, I would, you know, they, you're just happier when they're all straight and level, right? <laughs> it works the same way in our lives. When things are as they should be, there's reason to be happy. You all, fellowship is restored with God. And how did God make man? Did God make man sinful or did God make man to be with God? When God originally made us, we had a very close relationship with him, right? But then we did wrong. We walked away from that. We made it all crooked. Well, when God makes it straight, when God makes it right and proper, things are as they were supposed to be from the start, right? So fellowship with God is restored. All right, so let me go on to read verses three. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. All right, so in order 
for David's sin to be forgiven, in order for him to experience the blessing. How many of y'all want that happy blessing? In order to get it, he had to confess his sin. He could not hide behind a fig leaf like Adam and Eve started to do in the garden when they sinned. He had to come out in the open. He had to say to God what, he, what God already knew, and that was that David was an ungodly man. You all, there is power in the confession of sin. It is very, very hard to do that. If you are holding to sin, on to sin in your life, you need to confess it to God. And James chapter 5 says when you confess your sins to other people. Now, I ain't talking about getting on Facebook and telling everybody you mess. But when you confess your sin, even your deepest, darkest things, to a few people close to you who love you, y'all, that's how our souls get healed. So you see David here says he was wasting away. But then he received, he experienced healing because he got his sin out there. And God took his sin as he let go of it. So you can't. You know, sometimes God will pry your fingers apart from something you're holding on to. But most of the time, he expects you to let go of it, and then he'll take it from you. All right, so Psalm 32, look at verse 10 and 11, and this is what I want for our lives. Psalm 32, verse 10. <clears throat> Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, all righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You all, the only way to have joy and meaning in this life is to know that your sins are forgiven and that your heart is right with God. You all, I want us to be the most joyful, happy people that this world has ever seen. And we will always talk about the gospel here. We will always talk about Jesus here. We will always talk about your sin and Jesus' mercy and Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection on the dead. We will always talk about that here because there is no more satisfying thing or joyful thing that we could ever think about. Throughout so much of our lives, we're pulled in all these other directions, and many of those directions are fine, okay? I'm not saying all that other stuff you do during the week is sin. I'm not saying that at all. But those are things that God called us to. He told us to take dominion over the earth and to subdue it and to do something good with what he's given us to do, right? So, you know, drive your truck, plant your garden, you know, go to work. I'm not saying those things are bad. But what I'm saying is that the most satisfying, blessed thing that you could ever realize is that God has taken your sin away. If you're here today and you aren't sure if God's taken your sin away, come talk to me afterward, okay? I'd love to help you walk through that. Having your sin taken away can be such a simple and a beautiful thing. And the Lord wants to the Lord is offering you his righteousness. He wants to justify you. And he wants to make you new. He wants to change you. And he wants to do something really wonderful and incredible in your life. Let's pray.